Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/dave for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that, believe it or not, when you're afraid, your ears secrete more earwax. I've never trained my ears to secrete more or less earwax, but I'm pretty sure that if you do heart rate variability training, you probably would make less earwax because you spend less time in a state of fear. But I don't think anyone's ever really done an experiment to prove it. Anyone down for that? For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30, and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. On today's show, I've got an amazing guy. His name is Glenn Elzinga, and he's the head of Alder Spring Ranch. If you go to my website on Bulletproof Exec, you've probably seen links to Alderspring. But what you don't know is that meat from Alderspring is basically the foundational building block for both of my kids. Over the past decade or so, I've spent, I think, north of $10,000 on beef directly from Glenn, from his head of cattle or his herd of cattle in May, Idaho. Glenn runs the cleanest facility that I've ever come across. And I've talked to him on the phone for years here and there. And every single question I've had about grass-fed beef and about the quality of beef, he's been able to answer. And very, very importantly, he has a short aging process on his meat and he uses an incredibly clean facility. So even though I prefer my beef to be not aged, I have had perfect results with Glenn's beef. And this is why the majority of the beef that I've eaten over the last decade has come directly from this man. So it's a great pleasure for me to have the master of meat on the show. Glenn, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. Tell me a little bit about Elder Spring Ranch, Glenn, and how long you've been doing it, how many head of cattle you have, and what's different about Alder Spring? Why, why is your meat better? Well, um, We've been doing this for about 20 years, Dave, and we started uh, right here in central Idaho, and we're kind of right in the heart of the Rocky Mountains, and we live in these big valleys. Um, 
if you look at a map of Idaho, if you look at a map of the Northwest, it looks like a grizzly bear took his claws and ripped a jagged tear uh, from the northwest to southeast of Idaho. And we're in one of those three valley trenches formed by his claw marks. And um, we started doing this here because, um, well, you know, my wife and I have uh, always kind of been involved in agriculture. Carol um, was brought up on, ironically, a corn and bean farm in the Midwest. And uh, my folks were into dairy farming and stuff. So we've always been interested in agriculture. And we always had a passion for for doing agriculture, but we went to college and kind of separated from agriculture, but all through that, uh, we became very kind of acutely aware about a need for a sustainable agriculture instead of um, what I believe the dominant move in agriculture is in America today to, to something that's not sustainable, not sustainable for, for our kids and especially for our grandkids to actually witness um, bountiful food production that's actually healthy for them. Um, so we had a passion for that, and we really felt like um, it was something we wanted to get involved with. I was actually working as a forester um, through all these mountains in central Idaho here. And, um, you know, we kind of fell in love with this country, and we fell in love with... Uh, with the whole kind of cattle landscape that runs in these mountains of central Idaho. Um, you, well, I think all of you would, all of you listeners, okay, imagine yourself in a mile-high valley, beautiful green grass, nice trout, um, bearing stream flowing through the middle of it, uh, aspen stands and pine tree stands lifting up out of the valley to 11,000-foot snow-covered peaks. And now you probably get a small glimpse of why uh, we fell in love with this country. But anyway, um, now take a few black Angus cattle and dot them on a hillside, and you really complete the picture from our standpoint. So anyway, we started, started raising these black Angus beef here about 20 years ago. We bought a small ranch, and we really had a passion with connecting to the consumers of that beef, to the eaters of the beef, and we wanted to connect those cattle to the land. Um, initially, to make money, we, uh, we put some of those cattle on a truck bound for Kansas feedlots. And I think we were driving across the Midwest one time, not specifically probably to that feedlot, but maybe it was. And our little kid said, Dad, what is that smell? And um, we're on I-80 in, uh, or actually I-70 in Nebraska, coming out of Colorado. And I said, that, my kids, is a feedlot. And there in the pouring ring, we saw about 55,000 head of cattle, a lot of them like ours, black Angus cattle, up to their bellies in muck. And um, they were being raised for food for us Americans and Canadians to enjoy. And, um, you know, there was this huge irony there that just posed itself immediately through my kids' question because here we have these black Angus cattle, same which we raised and which we took care of, which we cradled in our arms literally as baby calves, and raised them on our premium grass, and here they are in a pouring rainstorm walking belly deep in a feedlot in Kansas. So, um, you know, it, it, it kind of awakened this uh, connectivity passion between us and the consumer. And uh, once that fire got stoked, well, we just realized there was no other option. So 20 years ago, we started selling directly to people. We only had a few cows, and we made a lot of mistakes, and we realized that... Uh, from the get-go that um, these cattle had adapted and uh, had been basically designed to, to function well in, in a grass ecosystem, and we thought there's no reason why we can't finish them completely on grass. This is the history, this is the ancestral history of this animal. There's no reason why we can't raise a grass-fed beef. And this date is long before grass-fed beef was cool. I mean, um, I remember our neighbors were actually kind of outraged that we weren't feeding corn to these cattle. I'm not kidding you. They were kind of outraged uh, that we weren't feeding corn to these cattle because they were used to bringing a huge bucket of corn every day to these cattle, you know, nice um, hot rolled flake corn, like 25 pounds a day to a steer, you know, and, uh, and you know, it wasn't long before we realized that if we did that to these animals, you know, and uh, not too long, like 20 months of age, we'd start actually causing ulceration in their guts. Because why? They're not made to eat this. This is not how 
the, the ruminant has been adapted to live. So anyway, that's how we got from point A to point B, and the 20 years has been really a refinement of techniques to, to raise what we believe to be the best grass-fed beef in North America today. So, so if I'm a biohacker, I would call you a cow hacker because cow hacker. what you started doing is you started looking at what are the outcomes from the behaviors we do, what are the correlations we can make, and then what do you do to, to make it a holistic system that's sustainable but also makes an incredible steak. I'll tell you, I've ordered grass-fed meat because I've been into this uh, before the words paleo were, were in use. Uh, this was you know going back to the early 2000s. And so this wasn't so much about eating like a caveman. It was just, I wanted the healthiest beef I could get really at any cost. And I wanted the most flavorful meat that was also the healthiest. And the reason that I ordered yours over and over and over, wasn't because I never tried anyone else's. It's because I couldn't, and I still to this date, haven't found grass fed meat that's at, at the level of yours. And you just explained why, because you spent 20 years working on the system of making beef. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Now, what about the arguments that, you know, cows are bad for soil and, you know, grass-fed beef is, isn't sustainable? Do you buy that as someone who's really an expert on this? You know, I think they threw us in the lump. You know, they lumped us with uh, this whole feedlot agriculture. You know, the bovine has gotten a, a really bad rap there, and it's guilt by association. Um, you know, people drive by the feedlots in Kansas. And it's not a, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a bovine scientist or any kind of scientist to realize that there's something wrong with this pitcher. And, um, you know, the pitcher gets worse when you try a lot of supermarket and even restaurant beef. Um, that's, that's just nasty. Um, you know, a lot of people come away from um, flavor experiences there and say, you know, this tastes terrible and I know why. You know, it, it, they've just connected the dots because they've experienced, you know, maybe third, fourth, fifth hand, or maybe through a car window on I-70, the problems of, of what we're doing here. So, you know, I think bovines have gotten a guilt by association, and there's a lot of people who've, who've lumped uh, beef cattle into, you know, this whole problem of what we've created in, in American agriculture today. You know, we basically created a commodity, commodity system that feeds feedlot beef. So what I'd like to counter that all with is, is a whole different system, and it's a system that's been around for thousands of years long before we came along. Um, we graze on 70 square miles of um, public and private rangeland. We lease some public land there, and it's 70 square miles that just our cattle run on and nobody else's. And it's, it's a virtually intact native system. It starts at the Sand River at 3,000 feet goes all the way up to Taylor Mountain, which is snow-covered right now. I'm looking out the window looking at it, and a former glaciated mountain that's at uh, just right near 10,000 feet. And uh, between those two elevation gradients is a grassland system that goes through, oh, probably five different um, montane and um, semi-desert biomes, and uh, it's grass all the way through that. So what I what I would submit to those people who say that uh, you know cattle as a whole and the whole cattle economy is um, is tough on soil is I would submit to them and say you know it wasn't long um, before it wasn't long ago that uh, that people were finding buffalo skulls all over a range up there and there's a ton of elk up there right now and uh, the buffalo are gone. But our cattle have replaced them, and uh, what I see there is a vibrant and well-functioning wild system that our cattle are actually benefiting from and benefiting to, because um, what, what, it, what the cattle have contributed to the life cycle up there is a healthy soil biome. And that's exactly, actually uh, further magnified our home place where we irrigate ground uh, down in our valley bottom. We have uh, 900 acres down here in the valley, and we irrigate out of the Pesimari River to flatten our forage curve. And here, um, what a lot of my neighbors are doing is they're growing some of the best alfalfa hay in the world, and it's because we have these montane, pristine soils that are very highly mineralized, and as a result, the alfalfa that they raise is also very highly mineralized and very palatable 
to cattle. There's people from as far away as Pennsylvania and Maryland and New York State or dairy farmers who are buying hay from our country. And it's they don't even know why. They don't even know why the cows like it. And it's because um, the soil is highly mineralized. But the problem with it is they're mining it, Dave. They're, they're just mining the soil by pulling this hay off year after year. But we have introduced cattle into the system. And as a result, it's sustainable. And it's just through that simple, uh, humble little manure pile that the cow leaves behind it that um, that soil becomes sustainable. And then we're actually building, we do organic matter uh, surveys and soil surveys on our ranch. And we're actually building the soils. We're building levels of organic matter. And it's because the bovine component is in the system. So that's that's the real kind of crux of the matter is that you compare an agricultural system, highly intensive farming the ground, tearing it up every year, uh, volatilizing a lot of key compounds out of the soil every time they farm it. And you oppose that with a grassland system that's intact year after year, maintains soil cover and prevents erosion. And now you introduce uh, a cycling of nutrient materials through manure and urine deposited by these bovines on the landscape that is actually building organic matter. And it's exciting to me, Dave, because I really think that um, a grazing economy is what's really needed landscape-wise, especially in the the West and the far Midwest of North America today. Have you seen the research uh, that recently came out they were talking about on TED about how you really get desertification? You lose the grassy soils if you don't have hooved animals on them. It, do you do you buy exactly. that in your experience? And, and do you think Yeah, that- I buy that because I, I'm seeing it on our arid environment uh, rangelands, you know, on that 70 square miles that we run cattle on. I see enhancement by cattle use. Um, there's soil disturbance that allows aeration, allows um, water penetration, um, enhances microbial buildup in the soil, um, enhances mycorrhizae buildup in the soil, and... Um, and just simple nutrient cycling through through um, urea and organic matter placed back on the soil. So it's uh, I see it firsthand. You know I'm on on the, on the back of a horse moving cattle, and I see enhanced areas as opposed to those with no grazing on them. Um, there's definitely a productivity difference. You know the the other side of it is overuse. You know I have seen some overuse areas. Um, and, and there's a lot of them around here where uh, the history of rangelands in North America, unfortunately, um, has been a, a series of overuses. And uh, what I'm seeing right now is kind of resurgence in, in interest as far as seeing rangelands as a truly sustainable system. And this, this guy who did the TED Talks is Alan Savory, and he happens to be probably the world's expert on this sort of idea that uh, grazing is actually not only sustainable, but an enhanceable way to repair systems that are, that have been altered or changed. And uh, I'd recommend anybody see that Ted talk. It's on uh, Alder Springs Facebook page. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it's on, even on Bulletproofs. We'll, we'll, Do you have it yeah, posted? We'll, Dave? we'll put it in the show notes for this episode. In fact, I should, uh, I should also give the URL, um, uh, bulletproofexec.com slash beef makes it really easy to see. We'll put um, all the links in and all, uh, and it, uh, we'll make sure that, that we'll even embed the video. But the, the question that, that I have for you then is when you come across someone who is vegetarian or vegan for, you know, for the health of the planet, uh, I mean, does that match with your experience? Uh, granted, it's a loaded question. You know, you're a beef farmer, but you're also a really conscious guy, and I, I honestly think you would be a vegetarian if you thought it'd be better for the earth. But like, how how do you how do you get the row crop mentality away from vegetarians and vegans? Or like, what's your take on that whole divide? You, you know, the hard part about that is is I don't have enough time. <laughs> you know, because because it is a long discussion, and it, and it takes a long time to convince somebody with a lot of facts. There, there's so much stuff to present to them to to see this thing differently. It's not something you can just go dinkle dinkle dink, and they're going to be like, "Oh, I get it." You know, um, so yeah. <laughs> so I usually take the the easy cheaty route. You know, like the other day, I was uh, 
demoing some beef in a, in a store of ours up in Montana, and uh, and I said, well, hey, would you like to try a piece of my uh, grassroot beef? And and they said, well, you know, I really would, I really would, because it smelled so good. And I said to him, hey, you know, um, are are you a vegan or vegetarian? And and they said, uh, well, well, yeah, and that's the whole problem. I, I really can't do it. And and I said, well, um, your secret's safe with me. And having you heard, ever heard that thing, you are what you eat, and these, these cattle are, are complete vegetarians. So I said, you know, basically, <laughs> by eating them, this complete food called called beef, um, you're actually a vegetarian in in a semblance of the word. And um, I've, actually gotten that, that, I've actually gotten a little more traction with that than trying to go into the whole, um, you know, grassland ecosystem versus whole crop agriculture thing because it's a starting point Dave and um you know it's a starting point for discussion and then I can go and talk to him further about um what you and I just talked about you know with regard to sustainable systems I I I think it's it's a unique and wonderful coincidence that the food that I believe is best for many parts of the planet in terms of, of the planetary husbandry plus the one that tastes best and the one that causes you better health and basically uh, I would, I would say the optimal human performance, it all comes together. You don't have to give up on any of those three variables. So you're taking care of the soil, (laughs) you're eating amazing food that makes you feel great and and function great. There isn't a loss there. The loss comes when you eat like feedlot beef because it's not the same product. They both say beef on them. Do you ever eat feedlot meat? Well, um, <laughs> you know, um, they're, they're, the county agent puts on this discussion, uh, you know, uh, it's called winter school, Cattleman's winter school. Um, you know, it happens every few weeks or something like that. And, and the reason I, I would go to a Cattleman's winter school, because there's always something I could pick up, um, you know, it's, and it's always fun to talk to the neighbors and stuff. But uh, anyway, we're, we're down there and I brought my cowboys along, Scott and Ethan, and, and uh, we're sitting there in the audience. And this this one we specifically wanted to go to because it was about um, added value cuts of beef. And uh, so this guy had, um, you know, whole prime rib roast uh, in vacuum pack and a uh, wet age in a New York and, and, and a whole filet up there. And uh, and he was going to pull these things apart and show us different ways to cut it, and which was interesting in itself because, you know, we, we got some ideas there. Um, but then, you know, he, he created all these special cuts and they had a bunch of George Foreman grills sitting there and they said, well, shoot, huh? we better cook these up. And, and, you know, there's about 50 people there and everybody's kind of rubbing their telly, their bellies and licking their chops, you know, and thinking, wow, this is going to be awesome because these are all graded, you know, high choice, borderline prime. They've been wet aged for quite a while and they, they were, you know, the creme de la creme of of feedlot beef, you know, and uh, me and me and the cowboys are looking at each other, you know, kind of, kind of wondering what this is going to turn into. Because Dave, I haven't eaten it for years. <laughs> I mean, just years, you yeah. know. And so um, anyway, well, you know, uh, push game shove, and we got in line and got our little um, little plates with the you know samples on. And I'm in a different side of the room from Ethan, and he, he and I are both pretty tall people, and. We can kind of look over the heads and make eye contact, and he took his bite before me and stuck that piece of meat in there, and I watched his face, and I, I took mine right about the same time, and we both were so disappointed looking. I mean, we just felt like somebody kicked our dog, Dave, because, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, they built us up to uh, to believing that this was this was going to be something awesome, and the irony is, you know, we're freaking out about how nasty this stuff is. And um, everybody else in there is, like, freaking out about how excellent this is, and they want to take it home. They were trying to – they gave some away as door prizes at the end. You know, you could take part of the filet home or part of the ribeye home, cut this way, you know, and cook it for your sweetie. And I was like, there's no way. You know, there's just no way. I, I, I don't even want to finish my sample type thing. And what it was was just musty and uh, kind of fishy tasting. And, you know, I think that – I think that we've been duped, um, you know, as a North American populace into what we think is good. I mean, it, it started good, Dave. I really do believe it started good back in the 50s 
you know, when, when they were killing cattle off grass before the feedlot mentality really took over. But um, that, that beef has slid downhill. The beef quality has slid downhill. And the flavors, as a result, have slid downhill. And the North American public has just fallen into this trap of thinking something's good when it's, it's really quite nasty. And, um, and there's, there's no more accountability in the system because of it. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. And, it, and it's just because, um, it's just like I said to that vegetarian, you are what you eat. And those cattle are what they eat. And they're eating stuff that they're not made to eat. And as a, as a result, microbially, they're entirely wrong. Biochemically, they're entirely wrong. And if our taste buds are picking it up as something entirely wrong, go figure how different chemically this food now is from what we're supposed to be eating, you know, as, as what, what we adapted eating, eating aurochs, you know, our ancestors, or eating whatever wild foods that our ancestors ate prehistorically, you know, and what we considered good. We've just moved from this goodness, and now we're eating something that actually tastes on the surface objectionable. And now you realize, well, biochemically, um, we're, we're so far off here that no longer can I call this stuff on this plate from the supermarket beef. It's not beef anymore. That's how far we've moved away from the truth of what beef really should be. I... I love the way you put that. Yeah, it it simply isn't food. And I, I, I made a mistake maybe oh, a month ago. I, I was talking with a bunch of of hedge fund traders uh, about how to be more bulletproof. Uh, they they bring me in sometimes to like work with with them on increasing performance. And they had this, you know, they're trying to be bulletproof. So we had uh, filet mignon, and it's, I know if it's factory feedlot beef, the filet has the least fat, and there's more toxins stored in the fat. So I'll eat this thing. And I ate it, and it, it, it tasted bad. But you know, I, I'd been on my feed for eight hours giving lectures about you know upgrading your brain. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to eat this. I, I whipped out my butter and put like half a stick of butter on top of it to raise the fat content. And yeah. you know what? I felt like crap the next day. Like I had circles in my yeah. eyes. I was puffy. Like like I I gained a love handle I didn't have before. My joints were a little sore. And like it occurs to me, I ate a damn piece of spoiled meat. That's exactly. what it is. Exactly. No, you're right. And, and now, you know, what, what the average American or anybody does in, in, in westernized um, nations is, is we take some medication. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I ought to take some Prilosec or something like that to mitigate how I feel. There, there's something wrong with me, we think, but in fact, it's something wrong with what we ate. And, and we thought it was beef, but it's not. It's not beef. That that's a big part of it, and the the distraction that comes with meat it is also reminds me of the coffee business. So with meat, you were saying, oh well, it's cut a special way, and oh, it, it's you know it meets this rubber stamp you know, prime level, and then oh, we cooked it in this special way. But okay, if you take a lump of, of like a turd and you cut it a certain way, <laughs> and you you flavor it nicely, <laughs> it's still a turd, right? It's so, still a turd. Yeah. A lot of of hand waving and magic goes into making it, you know, this certain way. But when you start out with something that's a real food that started out from real soil and ate real things, then whether you cook it very simply or whether you go the full sous vide with you know spices imported from you know one armed monk picked something in India, whatever you do to make it real, real fancy <laughs> right, in a restaurant, right. it's, yeah. it's all good. But if the core ingredient is wrong, you are not going to perform very well. And, and that's why I've, I've been such a fan of your beef for years. You're the only guy I know who produces fat that's yellow instead of white. Yes. What's up with yes. the yellow fat? Oh, it's just, it's just all about beta carotene. <laughs> You know, and, 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 and the highly mineralized soils that I was telling you about. I mean, we live, um, like I said, we live at about 5,100 feet, and these soils are very young geologically. Um, I live, one side of the ranch is entirely volcanic ash, um, very recent volcanic ash, and the other side is uh, very recently decomposed quartzite that was decomposed by glaciation. And... Um, <laughs> People come here, you know, people will come and intern and, and, you know, they'll look at our soils and they'll say, what soil? And it's because it's about 30% rock 
Um, there's a lot of cobble mixed in with it, but it's all breaking down. You know, I know maybe not in my lifetime, but it's all it's all decomposing slowly. But as a result, it's highly mineralized, and um, it means that those things haven't been leached because we live in a semi-desert environment. There's no rainfall. We don't have 45 inches of rainfall that leaches soil, that washes all that mineralization away. Um, and it shows up in our grass. It just shows up in our grass. And that's what creates our unique flavor profile that you've come back to buy often over and over and over again. And because of that mineralization and that mineral profile, I just really believe that, you know, this is beef, the way it was adapted to be raised, the way it was designed to be raised. And um, it's a complete food. It really is. It, it's just, it's a complete and a completely satisfying food. You know, when you when you eat a ribeye, um, it's it's one of these deals. I mean, when you and I go to a restaurant and we get a plate-sized ribeye of a grain-fed steak, even if it's a good one that was seasoned properly and stuff like that, Dave, you know, in in my past, I can't really come up with two ways that, you know, too many times that I wanted to eat the whole steak. Um, but I always wanted to eat an entire one of our ribeyes. I mean, how about you? You know, when you were buying ribeyes for me, wouldn't you eat the whole ribeye from tip to tail, Dave? You know, because I, I even enjoyed the fat. The fat had just a wonderful flavor, and a lot of it, you know, was probably highly mineralized flavor, you know, from that beta carotene that, that's showing up in that grass. So, um, you, you actually go taught, ahead. You taught me a bad habit there. Um, back when I first started eating your beef and, and going all, all grass fed, I realized just how amazingly full and just vibrant I felt. I'd get like like a meat high after eating. Yeah. When you're saying, I, I literally felt like bulletproof. Just wow, that this just amazing energy would come. And I thought, okay, it's because I'm eating more fat. So then I went to Ruth Chris and ordered a ribeye, and I ate all the fat on that. And literally, like, I got sick the next day. I'm like, yes, you do. What's yep. the difference here? Well, the difference is it's not the same thing, and and like, there's a different mouthfeel to it, and a different flavor profile, a different level yep. of satisfaction, and a different level of of honestly mental clarity that I feel from eating like highly mineralized, highly nutritious uh, meat like yours. That. It's it's hard to believe, and I thought maybe I'm just deceiving myself, but no, there's no self deception here. It's basic nutrition, and it's all this other crap that's in this the other meat. There's antibiotics, um, there's right. synthetic You're hormones, exactly right. soy oil, and corn oil, and God knows what else. So I um, I literally just promised myself if I'm going to go out to eat, I'm not going to eat the commercial meat anymore unless it's you know grass fed, local raised, which a few restaurants have now, or right. I'll order the fish and. I know that talking about fish with a, a beef farmer is a little bit ridiculous, but I'm a huge, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Say that again. <laughs> exactly. But you, you get it. Oh, we've, we've, we've come full circle. We're actually talking about fish now. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I'm horrified because up where I live up here in British Columbia, we have some of the world's best sockeye salmon and some Norwegian large fish farmers. Um, by the way, if you are Norwegian, you should be embarrassed right now that you only have a few million people in your country and you are doing this to the planet. So, hey, I have lots of Norwegian friends, but guys, chill. Anyway, up here we've got 25 salmon feedlots that have contaminated the local species with a bunch of viruses uh, and other infections such that the stocks are declining by about 90% in the rivers wow. that have these horrible feedlot operations. So I'm, I'm disturbed and offended, and we'll put some links into a documentary about that. But you hooked up with some guys on a different river, the Copper River, and you're actually carrying their salmon on your site, which I, I think is admirable because I'm finding it more and more difficult to find wild Alaskan sockeye. And some of that's my fault. I, you know, There's a half a million people who come to the Bulletproof Executive site every month, and I do talk about, about sockeye salmon and how it has less mercury and all that. What's the deal with your source? Like, why why do you think it's worthy of going on your side? Well, um, first of all, it has to do with the people. It's Chris and Heather Maxey. They they um, we're in Bozeman, Montana, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a crazy deal. I, I've been trying to get a hold of these people for years because they have shared um, store. Um, meat cases with me for years. I had a store in Missoula and a store in Bozeman, Montana, and they always had their fish and they always had our beef. And um, 
you know, so so these two things share the case, and these these stores that um, really um, build themselves as uh, supporting local and sustainable um, protein sources, and they were doing a good job of it, you know, and I actually trusted their their input on it. But anyway, I've been trying to get a hold of these people on the phone, calling them, like, you know, shooting them emails, texts, or whatever, for several months, and even I think two three years ago, I tried the same thing. Never could get a hold of them because I've been kind of looking for somebody to partner with on a on a sockeye salmon, and sockeye salmon specifically because of its omega three content. And um, you know, I got seven kids, Dave, and um, you know, they're they're varying ages from eighteen to eight years old, and uh, we've always we've always wanted to eat fish because fish, I believe, is just an important part. Um, to our diet, and uh, we're eating a ton of beef, of course. Well, kind of a no-brainer. You live on a ranch, you raise cattle. Of course, you're going to eat your own beef. But um, you know, there there'll be times when the kids say, "Dad, there's got to be something else besides beef." And uh, you know, they just want some diversity in their diet. And nutritionally, I want some diversity in their diet. So, I've been trying to find somebody who um, who catches wild sockeye up north without buying somebody online. I just wanted a relationship with somebody. Because I had this ulterior motive of perhaps um, stocking our site with their fish, no pun intended. And um, anyway, um, enter Chris and Heather Maxey. Finally, did get a hold of them. Was up in my store in Bozeman uh, cooking some beef the other day, and we actually did a lunch together. And uh, this is probably a month ago now. And. Uh, they still have sockeye left from last year's run that was flash frozen, vacuum packed in their package, just uh, painstaking quality, small, small assembly line of very few people putting together their product in vacuum pack and flash freezing them individually, which is key, because we do that with our beef too that we sell online. We spread out every steak individually in our freezer. Um, a lot of our competitors will throw all the beef in a box, in a box of ribeyes, then it will be a pallet of ribeyes, Dave, and then they'll blast 70-degree uh, below zero air at it and say we're flash freezing. That's not flash freezing as uh, Clarence Birdseye many years ago pioneered the method. Flash freezing is putting individual pieces out and subjecting them to that 70 below zero air, and we do that with every one of our steaks. So that steak freezes in just minutes. It is frozen brick hard in 25 minutes, frozen pretty hard in 15 minutes. And the reason we're doing that is because of ice crystal formation. And you'll get ice crystal formation actually cut through the cell walls of the muscle tissue of that beef, and in this case fish, and break it down and you'll lose moisture. And moisture means mouthfeel, moisture means um, uh, loss of nutrients if you lose that moisture. Basically, you saw at the package, you got a pool of moisture on your plate. There goes half the nutrition down the drain. So we didn't want that. We didn't want that um, large ice crystal formation. So that's why we do flash freezing process. But that was key in, in this lunchtime conversation with Chris and Heather. They don't do that. Then there's a whole bunch of additional things. It's Copper River, which is um, like the Fraser used to be, Dave. Um, and the sockeye are excellent omega-3 bears, more, I believe, than any other Alaska salmon because of the distance. The distance is key. 300 miles, these fish have to swim upstream. They don't spawn near the coast. They spawn a long ways upstream. Copper River is a lot of elevation gain, a lot of rapids to fight. As a result, these fish come into the system with a ton of fat on them, and that's good for us as humans because we need omega-3s in our diet and there's there's gobs of this omega-3 fat on these fish so they're some of the highest omega-3 fish known out there in terms of salmonids and then um, the other part of it is that Chris runs his own boat he doesn't have a crew he's one man out on the water he handles each fish individually and he specifically tells me he handles them and lowers them into the cool box in his hold. He doesn't throw them over the shoulders like you see in the fish movies, you know, of guys, you know, pulling tuna out of the out of the water with hook and reel and throwing them in the back of the boat. There's none of that. He handles each fish individually and cares for them, and cares for not only the fish but cares for 
the sustainability of the Copper River system, and that's just a big deal. It's his livelihood. They form a cooperative in the, cooper- in the Copper River Basin that actually um, speaks to that very specifically because they they have understood now the value of that specific type of salmon. So as a result, Copper River sockeye um, is something we, we wanted to pick up. Chris and Heather are natural partners, and that's why it's on our site today. It, it's really interesting as a biohacker. Like my main foods are beef and lamb, a grass-fed local uh, butter, because you want the saturated fats and the omega-3 fats that you get from yeah. properly fed yeah. beef. And you want to get it also from the fish because the fish has EPA and DHA fatty acids in it. And your cell membranes like to have lots of saturated fat in them so that they can be stable. And then you need enough omega-3 in your cell membranes in order to allow the flexibility that happens. So, so if you think of like a, a fence that's made of, of you know, wooden boards, you want a little flexible connection between each wooden, wooden board so you have some resilience and some flexibility. But if you try and build a fence that's all bendy, it falls over on its own. And that's what happens if you eat only omega-3 and omega-6 oils. So this balance of meat and fish certainly produces the highest levels of performance as well as health for me. And it's what I feed my kids. Uh, it's what I recommend on the Bulletproof Diet because you got to have both. And if we allow river systems to become polluted, especially by this crap farm salmon from Norway – uh, we will actually lose that as a food source. I'm I'm really concerned when I see 90% decline in stocks over the course of five years right after farms get introduced. So, you know, tell your friends uh, at the fish farm or at the fish um, fish catching friends that if they see fish farms there, that it's time to pull out the dynamite because you should not allow those on that river. You bet. You bet. It's a huge compromise to all these native fisheries. All through the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's it's already happening on the other side of the Pacific in a huge way, um, you know, and a lot of that is already gone, and it's just happening all through BC, and I have concerns that, you know, there's parts of Alaska that are also, you know, going to see the same thing happen, see that decline due to uh, disease brought in by, by uh, fish farming. Yeah, I I do not know right now if my kids when they when they're growing up if they're going to even be able to eat sockeye salmon. And I live in a place where sockeye lives today, and it, that is disturbing to me. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I I do my best to eat fish like sockeye that is farmed sustainably. Yeah. Sorry, not farmed. That is uh, caught sustainably, well well crafted species that have had a chance to spawn first. So it, it's kind of amazing yeah. that you know here you are a, a beef expert looking at sustainability, but you're also looking at the river ecosystem as well because. Ultimately, everything we do is tied to the land, and if we do it right, uh, we thrive. And if we don't do it right as a species, uh, things are kind of dim. And I, I really don't. Right. Like that. So yeah. I, I appreciate you. Yeah. Coming well, on. any of us who have kids, any of us who has kids, you know, we, we we tend to think of their futures, you know. Yeah. And even if we don't, you know, we we you know we tend to be pretty caring toward each other and and just we we got it we got to get our heads around and think sustainability we got to think long-term sustainability because the food the food production system that is in place today is not sustainable maybe it is from its own standpoint as as a food processing system but that food is not sustainable for humans I mean, it's the reason why we have autoimmune disease today. It's the reason we have heart disease and cancer today. I really think it goes back to what we're eating and what food has become. It, it's very true. Now, we're running out of time on the show, but normally there's one question that I ask everyone, and I'm going to ask you that question. But first, the other final, final question is, what is the best way to cook a ribeye? <laughs> The best way to cook a ribeye, um, you know, I there's this primal thing in me, Dave, that likes fire and, and likes a little bit of smoke. So um, I'd have to say best way to cook a ribeye is outdoors on charcoal or, or local wood, local hardwood. Um, and here's why. It's just because um, it takes things to the next level as far as flavor, just to add a little bit of smoke. And I'm not talking about, like, charcoal um creating charcoal on the meat itself. You know, I'm talking about maybe some light grill lines, some browning, um, but there's no replacement for, like, cooking on a Weber grill um, without, like, causing all these nasty compounds to occur. 
that a lot of people do by over-grilling things. So a leg grilling, um, two turns, probably the best way to cook a ribeye um, on lower heat. Uh, maybe an initial sear on a hotter part of the grill to close things up and provide yourself an opportunity to get full cooking down to a medium rare level all the way through the steak. Um, but there's some key points that I should throw out there. First thing I do is uh, I pat that steak dry, Dave. Do you do that? I mean, I just I just pat that steak dry and take yeah. a paper towel or, or a washcloth or something like that. It sounds kind of weird, but it's important because you, you don't want to cook boiled meat here. And basically, if you leave all that moisture on the outside of the meat, you're going to get boiled meat on the outside. What you want is that nice patina. You want a little bit of caramelization on the outside of that steak because it really complements the flavor of the steak as a whole. So I just dry it off to get that little bit of patina on there um, through grilling. So, um, so you, then it's salts? just about going slow and going low after that, after that initial sear. And then I pull off just before I think it's going to be done, about five minutes before it's going to be done, and let it finish uh, cooking on my plate. That's key because a lot of people just, They'll end up doing perfection, they think, on the outside, and they'll end up overcooking the inside, which is actually the best part. I mean, eating eating good steak is kind of like, you know, we, we like, us, us humans like so many foods that are stacked. You know, we like sandwiches, we like pizza, you know, and, and those things are things I, I don't eat anymore. Um, uh, when I turned 40, you know, we totally became gluten-free, and I dropped carbs completely out of my diet now. So there's not many things like that, but we always like a little bit of edge effect in our food. And um, that transition between a little bit of a seared outside and a nice pink interior is a nice contrast and really complements the steak as a whole. And you'll get that if you pull it off the plate five minutes early and allow it to complete on the plate. Well, getting steak cooking lessons from the guy who makes the steak in the first place is, is remarkably cool. Thank you for that, Glenn. Uh, if you do decide to order a ribeye, uh, definitely cook it carefully and heat up the plate you're going to put it on. Don't put it on a cold plate. Put that plate in the oven. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Good point. You, you've just got to do it. You're, you're going to be eating something that is the equivalent of, of the very best bottle of wine you're ever going to drink in your life uh, if you get one of Glenn's ribeyes. And uh, you, know, you wouldn't drink your wine from a Tupperware glass. Uh, so yeah, just heat up your plate. It may sound weird, but it will taste better. It'll finish cooking properly. You don't need to heat the plate to 300 degrees, 180, 200 degrees, just enough to keep the meat warm and let it do its own thing. Yes. Good point. And, uh, great point. If this is making you hungry, bulletproofexec.com slash beef is where to get all the links (laughs) and information uh, about this. And so I, I cannot more highly recommend Glenn's beef and I I voted with, you know, my palate and my performance for the past decade. Uh, and that brings us to our final question, Glenn, which is something that every podcast guest has, has answered. And it's what are the top three things that you recommend for people who want to be higher performance in all aspects of life? So it doesn't have to be just about beef or anything else like that. Just in your experience as a human being, if you could offer three pieces of advice to people to just kick more ass, what are those three pieces of advice? I guess it would would have to start with diet for me because it has basically changed my life. That is the A number one thing. And, you know, I can't slam vegans um, as as hard as I often think I, I need to. Because I have met vegans who um, have committed to a vegan lifestyle and they actually seem to feel okay and maybe in their body type or ancestry or something I'm missing, I can't put it together. But this paleo thing I'm doing right now, um, which is pretty much a complete lack of carbohydrates, has made me feel better than I ever have. I'm 50 years old right now, Dave, and I just feel excellent. And I can't recommend... Um, eating this way more highly, but it's important to choose those protein sources very carefully because, you know, like we talked about earlier, um, obviously, you know, that other beef um, that, that you find in the store that everybody else is, is saying is great, it's not really beef at all. It's not really a food source. It's, it's actually something that's quite altered and has an adverse chemical makeup to your body and to your wellness. So that's probably the first thing I would do. Um, Second thing I, I would heartily recommend is, is to get outside. I, I see so many people today. You know, we live in a, 
in a very beautiful environment and stuff like that. It's hard not to be outside every day because you just want to be out there, even if it's brutal out. And then there's all the work you have to do outside. Um, but I, I guess it doesn't matter where you are. You need to you need to just be outside and um, breathe air and and feel that sunshine on your face and maybe even feel rain on your face. I think it. I think we we really um, you know we talk about exercise and all this cool stuff, but I think there's there's something to be said just for getting out there in the air and getting into clear water in a river, uh, washing your body off by swimming in that river or the ocean. And I, I think there's something there for us all that's just going to really contribute to our wellness. And I, I think the next thing I would recommend for contributing to our wellness is do something outside of ourselves. And that means... Um, Figure out a way we can we can serve other people because there's there's nothing better for your wellness, um, you know, other than those two other things I mentioned, to, to than to really pour out your soul and your heart for somebody else, you know, and maybe it's just your family, you know, and and doing stuff with them, but you know, there's there's all kinds of people who who need your help, whether it be for advice or or you know maybe material help or whatever. Or maybe it's just reading books to kids in the library. I don't know, you know. But um, any level of doing something for somebody else is just a huge deal for me, you know. And I try to get that into every one of my kids because it's just so foundational. Because otherwise, what's the point, you know? What's the point of all this wellness if, if we can't enjoy each other and if we can't help each other get through this life together and, and enjoy it together? So um, I guess that would be the three things I'd invest in. And well, I am. <laughs> well said. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Uh, Glenn, th- thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, you can, or people can find more information about you by going to bulletproofexec.com slash beef, and we'll put all the links to your salmon and your beef and all the other things um, that you're doing cool. on, on the show notes there. And thanks again for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to someone who's put so much of their life and their time and their energy uh, into, you know, making something as good as it can be, uh, in your case, meat. You bet. Well, I sure appreciate the chance to be here. And it's just it's just great, as always, visiting with you, Dave. We always have great conversations. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime soon. Anyway, take care and thank you again. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.